This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Eileen, thank you very much for that introduction. I'm sure my mother would be very proud if she heard about it. And I want to congratulate all of you for waking up early uh, to be here at 7 o'clock in the morning for the session. And also on behalf of the American Academy of Dermatology, I'd like to send away uh, our best greetings for a successful uh, meeting in the next few days. So the topic that I'm to cover is on essentials and practicalities of uh, photo protection. Okay. This is my disclosure slide. Uh, you can see that there are three companies that uh, we have received uh, uh, research study grants for, all of them on photodramatology-related projects. It goes directly to the department uh, in terms of the research funding. Speaking to this audience, I think you all practice dermatology. We, we know that we are, we are talking about photo protection. We are talking about the side effects of sunlight on the skin and how to protect our skin from those side effects. So uh, what I'd like to do is that um, the organizer had asked me to provide some questions for pre and post test. So this is the first set of questions. What is the lowest SPF for which the effectiveness of sunscreen in decreasing non-melanoma skin cancer has been dem demonstrated? You can see all the numbers there. So we'll start now. We'll move on to the next second question. Critical wavelength, which is a term that is used by the FDA, and we all use it now in terms of the sunscreen, is a method to assess UVA protection of sunscreen, B, method to assess UVB protection of sunscreen, the peak wavelength for inducing sunburn, the peak wavelength for inducing tanning, and the wavelength at which UV filters in sunscreen would, uh, I cannot see the last part here, would degrade. Let's move on. The third question, which of the following best describes the property of micronized titanium dioxide? As you know, titanium dioxide is used in sunscreen, reflects UV radiation, scatters UV radiation, absorbs UV radiation, all of the above. Very good. And this is the last question, I believe. Which of the following has been shown to decrease the development of non-melanoma skin cancer? Alpha lipoic acid, biotin, folate, nicotinamide, vitamin D. All right. So the learning objective for the next uh, few minutes, next uh, 40 minutes or so, is to understand the impact of the FDA regulations on sunscreen, describe the controversies on UV filters, know the new concepts in photoprotection, and then to talk about and summarize novel photoprotective agents. 
So let's start uh, with the general concept of photo protection. We all uh, advise uh, our patients how to do photo protection. What I'd like to emphasize is that there are a lot of outdoor activities that would give benefit physically as well as psychologically to all of us. So I think the message that we need to send to the patient is that one should be able to go outside, one should be able to enjoy the outdoor activities, but in doing so, one should practice the appropriate photo protection. And I want to emphasize when we talk about photo protection is the entire package that is shown here, uh, staying in the shade when outdoor, using appropriate clothing, wearing hats, white brim hats ideally, sunglasses, and only on the uh, exposed area that cannot be covered with everything else, then you can use sunscreen. And then we will talk also about some of the newer agents that have been developed uh, still in the study stage. So for the, for the next part of my talk, I will focus on sunscreen, I will focus on some of the new agents, but I want to emphasize, you know, this is the total package that we have to educate our patients on, not on sunscreen alone. So in terms of sunscreen, by now I think the data is very, very strong that sunscreen can suppress the development of photoaging can suppress the development of skin cancer. There are quite a number of studies, but these studies that are listed here are the best studies uh, done thus far. Uh, this is an Australian study. You can see that it is a eight and a half, uh, uh, four and a half year, let me see if I can get the pointer working. Nope. Well, it's a four and a half year and eight year follow-up study of 1,600 residents in Australia randomly assigned to daily SPF 16. Notice that it's only 16 because this study was started quite a while back, and at that time, that was one of the best sunscreen around. Clearly, the technology had developed since then. We are there significantly higher SPF, but this particular study that proved the, uh, the uh, beneficial effect of sunscreen is done with SPF 16. It was broad-spectrum sunscreen versus control group. What they found is that the sunscreen group had decreased development of non-melanoma skin cancer, melanoma, as well as photoaging. This is a very, very nicely done study, a very strong piece of data. So let's talk about the regulation on the, by the FDA. As we all know that sunscreen, all the UV filters, is regulated by the FDA as an over-the-counter drugs. Because of that, the regulation is very, very strict. That's the reason it takes a while for any type of uh, UV filters to be approved. Uh, the FDA final rule was released by now quite a few years ago in 2011. At that time, it was the first time ever in the US that UVA testing and labeling requirements are stated. We know that in terms of the uh, sunburn UVB effect, SPF is a very, very good markers for that, a good measurement for that, but up to 2011, the UVA protection of sunscreen was not uh, uh, labeled, was not required by the FDA. So this, for the, for the first time, we now have labeling requirement, testing requirement for FDA protection. What FDA uh, had uh, decided is that to use an in vitro test, Critical wavelength is the test that they suggested to do, and nowadays all the U.S. sunscreen, in order to get broad-spectrum labeling, they have to go through this critical wavelength test. Specifically, 370 nanometer or above is considered to be broad-spectrum. So it is a pass-fail system. So any sunscreen that has critical wavelength greater than 370 would be considered broad-spectrum sunscreen. It uh, is, can be stated on the label on the same font size and line as the SPF. Let me explain what this critical wavelength is. 
Critical wavelength is the wavelength below which 90% of the sunscreen UV absorbance occurs, evaluated between 290 to 450 uh, nanometer. Not sure, I think this pointer doesn't work. Uh, so if you look at, I want to use the right slide here. If you look at the slide over here, this is a UVB sunscreen. You could see that critical wavelength here, 90% of the area under the curve occurs at this particular case, about uh, two, uh, two, 328 or so. So critical wavelength for this particular one is 328. So that is a UVB sunscreen only. Let's compare and contrast that with broad spectrum sunscreen. You could see that 90% of the area under the curve is at 380. So this particular sunscreen is a broad spectrum sunscreen. Clearly, one can game the system by putting in a lot of UVA filter, therefore pulling the critical wavelength to the longer wavelength with very little UVB protection. That is not the sunscreen that we want to have. That is the reason uh, for all uh, sunscreen. This has to be, the critical wavelength number always has to be combined with SPF, and that's what the FDA has required all sunscreen manufacturers to do. So critical wavelength is a UVA protection measurement of sunscreen. And this is based on the FDA guidelines here. You can see uh, this sunscreen had passed the critical wavelength test, so broad spectrum happened to be SPF 15, uh, water resistant, waterproof is no longer allowed, so all the sunscreen now, if they want to uh, state anything at all, it has to be water resistant, either 40 minutes or 80 minutes. Used to be waterproof or very waterproof, cannot be used anymore, so water resistant, either 40 minutes or 80 minutes. All right, let's talk about some of the newer sunscreen that has been around in the FDA approval pipeline. Currently, there are a total of eight sunscreen that is still being uh, waiting for FDA approval. Some of them has been as, uh, sitting there for at least 10 years, and FDA has not done uh, any approval on this point, so this is literally having reaching an impasse, and uh, American Academy of Dermatology is working closely with the FDA to see how we can facilitate this particular process. The reason that it is important uh, for uh, US uh, customers to get uh, other UV filters is that because it is now known that the UV filters, the sunscreen in the US, if one look at the UVA protection component, it is not as good as sunscreen that is available in Europe. This is one of the data that's comparing four US sunscreen and four sunscreen sold in Europe. All of them has SPF 50 or above. The green, uh, the yellow lines are the UV, uh, are the, uh, the uh, European sunscreen. The darker lines are the US sunscreen. Notice that at the UVA spectrum, the overall the European sunscreen has better absorption as compared to the US sunscreen. So the bottom line here, the US sunscreen, this particular study transmitted three times more UVA. You can see the difference between here, three times more UVA, UVA compared to the European products. Another study uh, that was done was looking at the US standard, which is the critical wavelength, and the EU standard. They use completely different standard. So let's, uh, this study uh, done by Steve Wang from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering looked at 20 US sunscreen. All of them are broad spectrum with a wide range of SPF. The US standard, as I mentioned to you before, is critical wavelength at 370 nanometer. And obviously, the vast majority, 19 of the 20 products, did pass that particular test. However, 
the EU standard was using the ratio of UVA protection factor over SPF. It has to be greater than one to three. And that is the European standard for UVA protection. You could see only 11 of the 20 products uh, would pass the European standard. Indicating again that UVA protection component, the European sunscreen in general is better than the US sunscreen. And the reason for that is that because the US, uh, we don't have good UVA filters, not as many very, uh, uh, types of UVA filter that can be used by the manufacturer to produce sunscreen that has a very, very good UVA protection. So let's talk about some of the controversies surrounding sunscreen. I'm sure many of you have gotten asked by patients or even by press a lot of time, and especially in the summertime, uh, this is uh, an issue that come up very, very frequently. I want to address oxybenzone, also known as a benzophenone tree. This is a very common ingredient in U.S. sunscreen, not as common anymore in the European sunscreen because they have other products, other filters that they could use to replace oxybenzone. In the U.S., it's not so easy to replace oxybenzone. Why is the controversy? One, oxybenzone is known to be the most common photoallergen among UV filters. In fact, it was noted as, uh, by the American Contact Dermatology Society in 2014 as allergen of the year. In Europe, because of that, there is a mandatory labeling requirement Sunscreen would contains oxybenzone, so there is a, sta a statement that has to be stated if it, uh, it does contain oxybenzone. Again, as I've mentioned, has been replaced in Europe mostly uh, with other UVA filters. Still commonly used, in fact, you know, 80, 70% uh, of the non-mineral sunscreen in the U.S. contain oxybenzone in the latest survey, mainly because we don't have much alternative in terms of UV filters. So why is oxybenzone uh, uh, becoming more controversial of late? Also, one, it has been shown in rat model to have endocrinologic effects, even though it is probably not significant in human beings, but nonetheless, the, uh, the data is out there and it gets brought up every single year. Uh, and uh, a few years ago, uh, Steve Wang and myself do some math mathematical calculation. It would take about 69 years of daily application in human assuming the total body is, uh, is applied uh, with sunscreen to achieve the same serum level as it was used in rat study, because those rats were given orally oxybenzone. No known safety issue in human has been in use since 1978, so it probably is a, it is a safe UV filters, but nonetheless, you will get asked by many about this particular issue. The other part that is more new is the, uh, the environmental effect of oxybenzone. It, in laboratory setting, I want to emphasize this is in laboratory setting, oxybenzone kills adult coral reefs, deforms DNA in larval stage, and levels, however, in ambient water is low, but nonetheless, data is out there, people will ask you, patients would ask you about this. Let's take a look at the great barrier reef, where you have a lot of coral reef bleaching that has been reported. What has been found is that the bleaching occurs in the remote areas with infrequent human contact. I put down the arrow here, this is, this is Cairns, which is most of the tourists would go to uh, uh, tour the great carrier, uh, coral reefs. Uh, the great uh, barrier reef, you can see that most of the 
uh, damage actually is away from Cairns is more in the other area that is uh, uh, not as commonly visited by tourists. So indicating that actually the current theory is that warming of the ocean water is the major cause for the coral reef breaching in the uh, Great Barrier Reef area. At least uh, this is what the current theory is, but still the data on breaching of coral reef is there and a lot of patients would ask you about it. So in terms of the safety of oxybenzone, we know it is photoallergen. It does have endocrinologic effect and observe, observe uh, adverse effect on coral reefs. However, it is only an animal model for the endocrinologic effect, and uh, the coral reef effect is in the laboratory setting, respectively. We all practice photoprotection. We all advise our patient to uh, do photoprotection. What about photoprotection and vitamin D? Would patient, because of that, get vitamin D insufficiency? Let's take a look at the data on this here. A few years ago, there was a very nice literature review looking at the sunscreen and vitamin D uh, data, and the bottom line here, normal usage of sunscreen does not generally result in vitamin D insufficiency. The reason for that is that we do know that when we all apply sunscreen, we don't apply it at two milligram per centimeter square, which is the amount that is required by the FDA for sunscreen testing. When we use it, there has been multiple studies on that, it's between 0.5 to 0.8 milligram per centimeter square, indicating the in-use SPF is going to be lower than the labeled SPF. That is the reason that normal usage does not generally result in vitamin D insufficiency. However, seeking shade, wearing protective clothing, uh, individual who practice rigorous photoprotection would result in, in inadequate vitamin D levels. Again, in this uh, second study there, uh, using sunscreen confirming the literature review uh, does not affect the vitamin D level. The other part that we should keep in mind is uh, in terms of sun exposure and vitamin D and DNA damage. This is a very nice study uh, from Anthony Young and his colleague from, the, uh, from Europe and, and UK. They look at sun seekers and seers observed for six days during the holiday period. These individuals were given a diary and UV exposure was uh, measured by a dosimeter. Then they measured the serum 25-hydroxy-D, which is the vitamin D level, and the urine thymine dimers. As you know, thymine dimers would, re uh, would reflect DNA damage. What they found is that there was a strong association between UV exposure and post-holiday TT dimers formation and 25-hydroxy. In other words, if you have increase in 25-hydroxy, you do have increase also of DNA damage markers, which is the TT dimers in urine as measured in this particular study. So the conclusion from this study is that UVB-induced vitamin D synthesis in that six-day period is associated with significant DNA damage, and the uh, vitamin D can be improved, can, vitamin D status can be improved more safely to vitamin D dietary supplements. Currently, the IOM requirement uh, recommendation, Institute of Medicine recommendation for vitamin D is 400 uh, international units for babies up to one year old. Uh, for the vast majority of individuals in this room, from one to 70 is uh, 600 international units. 
for those older than 70 is 800 international units. So I tell my patient, if you take anywhere between 800 to 1,000, it's perfectly adequate to maintain adequate serum vitamin D level. And most multivitamins nowadays, they do contain 1,000 international units of vitamin D. Let me cover another area, nanoparticles in sunscreen. This is so-called chemical-free sunscreen, which is a misnomer because nanoparticles are chemical. But nonetheless, the term uh, chemical-free sometimes is used to refer to nanoparticle-containing sunscreen and no other uh, UV filters in there. Let's take a look why nanoparticles is used. And this is, a, uh, on the left side, is a sunscreen that contains only chemical uh, filters. On your right-hand side is the sunscreen that has a combination between uh, chemical and physical filter, also known as organic and inorganic filters. And those inorganic filters are shown by the little yellow dots in there. Let's take a look what happens when sun exposure occurs. On the right-hand side, on the left-hand side, that is, you know, the uh, photon would come here, would get absorbed by the UV filters in there. That's how you get the protection. That's how you get the SPF number. Let's take a look what happens when you have a mixed product that contains organic and inorganic filters. You could see the photons would, uh, would hit the inorganic filters. It gets reflected. Therefore, it has to travel in a much uh, longer distance before eventually hitting the skin surface. Keeping in mind, in this phase here, it also has UV filters, which are chemical. Therefore, the probability of the photons to be absorbed by the chemical filters is significantly higher as compared to the diagram shown on the left. That is the reason there is always a synergistic effect between sunscreen that contain organic and inorganic filters in sunscreen. That's the reason it's commonly used as a combination product. Keeping in mind also that when we talk about uh, inorganic filters, specifically titanium dioxide, it does reflect light, but also it does absorb light. And this is shown here, especially if you make the uh, titanium dioxide smaller, that is to nano-size nano the titanium dioxide, you could see as the uh, diameter gets smaller, the absorption peak shifted towards the UVB spectrum. So titanium dioxide not only reflects, scattered, but also it absorbed uh, ultraviolet light. And you can see, especially when it becomes nanoparticle, which is what is used in, by, in sunscreen products. Another hot topic nowadays is antioxidants in sunscreen. Uh, this is commonly ad advertised in many sunscreen. They contain antioxidant, therefore it's more helpful than sunscreen alone. For a while, antioxidant was thought to be very unstable, which is true. Uh, it is very difficult to stabilize antioxidant sunscreen, but in the past few years, the technology has advanced that nowadays they are very good sunscreen with antioxidants that have been very, very well stabilized. So these are two studies showing that sunscreen with antioxidant is better than sunscreen alone in suppressing UV-induced pigmentation, depletion of lung cell, induction of the matrix metalloproteinases, and also in suppressing infrared, which is a, a heat, infrared A-induced met matrix metalloproteinases. So properly stabilized antioxidant sunscreen uh, is indeed potentially beneficial. So let's go on with some of the newer concepts uh, in uh, photo protection. And first, I'd like to just bring up this concept about the amount of photon block versus photons transmitted. 
This is uh, shown uh, in this uh, particular diagram here. The, the amount of photon block, this is, this is a sunscreen that has, that has no sunscreen at all. You can see that UV coming in, all the photons would get transmitted into the skin. But in, uh, if you have uh, SPF 15, SPF 30, SPF 60 sunscreen, you can see the number of photons getting transmitted is proportionally less and significantly less. Even though the number is still very, very small comparing to this number, this is clearly a very small number of photons, but significantly more compared to this. So for acute exposure, it's probably not going to be very significant. However, if you use sunscreen continuously on a daily basis over years, the, the fourfold difference between these two sunscreens, 15 versus 60, potentially could result in significantly more damage in SPF 15 as compared to SPF 60 sunscreen. So it's a relatively new concept that one should consider when uh, recommending the use of photoprotection, the use of sunscreen, probably the higher SPF number, indeed there is some advantage to that. The other advantage of higher SPF number, and I usually recommend for people who are outdoor to use SPF at least 50 or above, is that I mentioned before that people, when we use sunscreen, we don't use it at two milligram per centimeter square. So by so doing, by using a higher SPF to start with, you will compensate for that because at least the in-use SPF would still be a significant number as compared to, uh, to labeled SPF. But so you want, you want to start off with a slightly higher number of sunscreen, and this is the other reason, you know, if you use sunscreen on a regular basis to use higher SPF sunscreen. So for the biologically and clinically more relevant to assess the uh, amount of UV photon transmitted, especially in a setting of chronic sun exposure, what I have just mentioned to you before. Let me highlight another aspect in terms of visible light. You know, so far we have talked about the effect of ultraviolet light. Visible light, we all need that for life, essentially uh, in, in the room, you know, this is needed for illumination purposes. We need visible light in order to appreciate life, essentially to enjoy life. And I uh, just want to highlight again, and this is familiar to all of you so far, we have talked about the effect of ultraviolet light. Visible light is from 400 to about 800 or so, and, um, and in, the, in the past, visible light is thought to have no uh, biologic effect, but of late, you know, we are beginning to recognize that visible light does have biologic effect. Not only visible light is needed for us to be able to enjoy a very nice glass sculpture, for example, that we saw on the Christmas holiday at Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. Without visible light, obviously everything would be very dark. We would not be able to enjoy you know, some of the beautiful things in life. So this is a study that we did a few years ago showing that visible light does have significant biologic effect. On the top panel is the UVA, uh, effect on the skin. You could see that immediately after exposure, there is immediate pigment darkening, some darkening of the skin. But after that, you know, it's pretty much resolved by the time uh, one week later. Notice the effect of visible light on this, the other hand. This is pure visible light without UVA. You could see that the immediate pigment darkening is significantly darker than UVA-induced pigment darkening. And then more importantly also, notice a week later, the UVA-induced changes has pretty much resolved, while the visible light-induced changes continue to persist. What should be noticed is that this study was done primarily with darker skin individuals. We, do we did not see it when we uh, use uh, patients with skin type 2. So this is more significant for patients with skin type uh, 3 to 6. 
Clinical implications on this, several folds. It may have a role, visible light may have a role on conditions aggravated by sun exposure, such as post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and melasma. And we all know those are conditions that is most common and most bothersome for our patients who are dark-skinned. We also know that currently available UV filters, they are UV filters, they do not uh, protect the skin from the effect of visible light. Because if you think about it, in order for the skin to be protected from visible light, that substance, that uh, sunscreen would have to be opaque. Because if you can see this, uh, this, uh, the sunscreen, that means you know, you, the visible light get reflected into your retina. That's the reason that the, the current sunscreen, by design, you know, they, they're completely transparent. They're not going to protect against visible light. That is the reason antioxidants, as I mentioned to you before, may be helpful because we do know visible light would induce uh, antioxidative uh, damage, would induce reactive oxygen species on the skin. So let's talk about some of the newer agents uh, that are around uh, now. These are still in the uh, experimental study stage, but it's quite exciting and quite promising. Let's start with the first one, which is polypodium leucotomus extract. This is essentially a food tree extract, mostly from Central America. And it has been around as an over-the-counter preparation for a long period of time. A lot of studies has been done over the years. And this, among all the uh, studies, uh, has been, uh, has been uh, among all the agents, has been studied the most, has been published in multiple uh, uh, peer-reviewed literature. It has an antioxidative and anti-inflammatory properties. What is known is that polypodium leucotomus extract would suppress the clinical changes induced by ultraviolet B, induced by PUVA, and also in, some, in two European studies, it had been shown that polypodium leucotomus extract would suppress the development of polymorphous light eruption. As you know, polymorphous light eruption tends to occur in the springtime, and uh, about 10%, 20% of general population would be affected by polymorphous light. They found that this was helpful in suppressing the polymorphous light also. So the question is that whether it has also a role in visible light photoprotection. That study is currently ongoing in our centers right now. We don't have the data yet, but probably in a year we will be able to, uh, we'll be ready to present that particular piece of the data. What, we, what has been done is that to look at the acute effect of polypodium leucotomus extract on UVB uh, exposure. This is a study that we did that was recently published uh, in the March issue of the uh, Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, looking at 22 subjects uh, given polypodium leucotomus extract, which comes in 240 milligram capsule, two hour and one hour before UV exposure. This resulted in a decrease in UV-induced erythema, primarily UVB-induced erythema in this particular case. You could see here, this is looking at 22 patients. There is a shift uh, 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 there, uh, in terms of the erythema in these patients. So essentially, you have a skin type shift to a darker skin type in patients who are given this particular product. So I mentioned a shift of skin phototype because they, uh, they can tolerate UV better not without producing erythema. Keeping in mind, this is a very acute study, two hours and one hour before, which has practical implications because obviously if this is, uh, can be extended into larger studies, the patients uh, or subjects can take uh, medic this particular uh, product in essentially immediately before sun exposure and would have less sunburn. 
So aside from the decrease in UV-induced erythema, also we look at the various markers of DNA damage, various markers of apoptosis, various markers of inflammation, and cell proliferation. All of them were suppressed. So essentially a very broad suppressive effect by uh, polypodium leukotomus. The other one is nicotinamide. And judging from the answer that uh, I saw before, you know, clearly many of you are quite familiar with this. Uh, this is a very, very nicely done study from Australia. Let's take a look what it is. You know, oral nicotinamide essentially is, uh, well, first of all, let me go back to um, bullet number one there. Nicotinic acid, also known as niacin, is essentially vitamin B3. So nicotinamide is the amide of the vitamin B3. You can see here, this is nicotinic acid. In vivo, it is converted automatically to nicotinamide. So it is an amide of vitamin B3. It is available over the counter. And the study was done in Australia, and uh, the rationale for the study, uh, primarily the main driver is Gary Halliday, who is a, a photobiologist in Sydney, a very good one. And uh, he postulated that UV would induce inhibition of ATP production. So if the cells are exposed to UV, there is, it would result in what he called energy crisis because of suppression of the ATP level in the cell. This would then result in the cells, in, uh, 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 it would decrease the cell's ability to mount an immune response and to do DNA repair because of the energy crisis in the cell. What he found is that nicotinamide at 500 milligram twice a day, which 500 milligram is available, which is the over-the-counter preparation, it blocks the inhibitory effect of UV on ATP production. So it reverses or it prevents this energy crisis in the cell. It would minimize UV-induced immunosuppression. It would enhance DNA repair. And most importantly, on the practical level, unlike niacin, nicotinamide does not produce flushing reaction. This is something that I think you have to be uh, aware of when you ask patients to get nicotinamide. Not infrequently, the pharmacy would give them niacin, and I have had experience, probably many of you have the same experience. A day, two days later, the patient would complain and call us and complain because they got flushing reaction from niacin. So you have to make sure they take nicotinamide rather than niacin. So the study was uh, published in New England Journal. Uh, in 2016, uh, looking at this particular effect. Very, very impressive and very uh, uh, nice uh, result. This is a phase three trial, which is to confirm effectiveness and to monitor safety of nicotinamide. Double-blind randomized controlled trials, a total of 386 participants with known history of non-melanoma skin cancer randomly assigned to nicotinamide group, 500 milligram twice a day, and placebo group. No difference in side effect because nicotinamide truly is very benign uh, uh, medication. And you could see that there is a significant suppression in the development of actinic keratosis. The study was done for 12 months. So during the one-year period, there is a significant suppression of the development of actinic keratosis. And as importantly, the development of non-melanoma skin cancer, basal cell as well as squamous cell carcinoma, that was significantly suppressed in this group of patients uh, as compared to control. So, however, the other part that was interesting in this particular study is that after the 12-month active treatment period was done, they stopped nicotinamide and they followed these patients. 
for another six months. What they found is that they followed this patient for another six months, the rate of non-melanoma skin cancer, basal cell, squamous cells went back to baseline, indicating that in order for nicotinamide to be effective, it has to be taken all the time, which makes sense because after all, it is the medication or the, the drug that would uh, inhibit or would, would prevent the cell, uh, the energy crisis in the cell. So if you have no nicotinamide, the, the uh, uh, energy crisis would recur again, and then, of course, the patients would again then develop uh, basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma to, at the baseline state again. So it has to be taken all the time. The same group, I don't know, we have the slide here. The same group also had done a smaller study uh, in transplant and immunosuppressed patient. The trend is there also, there's suppression of the uh, development of skin cancer in those immunosuppressed patients. Numbers are relatively small, therefore that particular study did not reach a statistical significance, but the trend is there. So I think this is something that you know, the, many of you probably are already doing it, but it's something that is definitely can be done uh, with safety based on very, very good data. The other part that I want to mention is relatively new area of photolysis. Photolysis essentially, these are naturally occurring enzymes. It is known to be able to repair uh, UV-induced thymidine dimers. It is not present in placental mammals, so definitely not present in humans. That's, that's the reason that photolysis was isolated from bacteria uh, that, that is used in this uh, study. There are a number of studies now, is summarized by Neil Bathia, who was here yesterday uh, in drugs and dermatology in the May issue. Uh, comparing sunscreen alone versus sunscreen that contain photoalliances. What was found is that sunscreen with photoalliances, the combination sunscreen, was better at reducing expression of apoptosis as, and, and markers for cell proliferation in suppression of the development of actinic keratosis and in eight patients with zero derma pigmentosum, suppression the development of actinic keratosis, basal cell, as well as squamous cell, as compared to pre-photolysis sunscreen uh, period. So th the data is out there, you know, potentially could be useful, relatively early still, but it's something that, uh, that I would like you to know about it. So uh, what, uh, in, in terms of novel photoprotective agent, they have uh, uh, promising as a junctive photoprotective measure. However, at this moment, I think the data is not mature enough, except for nicotinamide, to replace current regimen of photoprotection. Even with nicotinamide, I think you know, it is used as an adjunctive therapy. I still tell all my patients to practice the appropriate photoprotection. On the other hand, if they are at high risk development in developing skin cancer, I would ask them to take nicotinamide. So it, it cannot be uh, to replace the regular photoprotection that we practice. So what I have done in the past uh, 30 minutes, 35 minutes or so, is to cover the impact of FDA regulations on sunscreen. Keeping in mind sunscreen in the US is uh, uh, um, uh, regulated by the FDA, and there are a lot of new filters that are available in all parts of the world except for the US that had not been approved by the FDA. And because of that, the UVA protection of sunscreen in the US is probably not as good as the European sunscreen. I described to you the controversy on UV filters. Uh, the data is not quite there in terms of scientific data, but nonetheless, data uh, on the side effects uh, uh, are there, and patients would ask you about it, oxybenzone being one, and uh, the effect of sunscreen or vitamin D is another one. 
mentioned about the new concept in photo protection, that it is more important probably, especially in a chronic uh, stage, to measure photons that is transmitted versus photon uh, that is blocked. Uh, but also the, to, about the effect of visible light on the skin that in darker skin individual, it can induce pigmentary alteration. And to summarize some of the newer photoprotective agent, nicotinamide being one, uh, polypodium leucotomus, photoliasis, there are several others. So I think it is something that, that we need to continue to keep our eyes open for, for the newer development on this area. So my hope is that the next time you enjoy the uh, sunset or sunrise, that you will be able to appreciate better uh, the entire field of photoprotection. So with that, now we'll go back to the questions that I asked you before. Uh, this is the, uh, the first question, so what is the lowest SPF for which the effectiveness of sunscreen in decreasing non-melanoma skin cancer has been demonstrated? because I didn't get the message across. The study that was done was the Australian study. As you recall, the Australian study, SPF 16 was the one that they used. So 20 is definitely sufficient to, to show that there is a decrease. It is true that SPF 30 is the one that we all recommend as a minimum that we should use, but the SPF 16 was the one that was done in that particular study, showing there is a significant decrease in non-melanoma skin cancer as well as photoaging. Okay, there are some who picked up. Okay, this one, one third. All right, let's go on to the second one, critical wavelength. It is a method to assess UVA protection, method to assess UVB protection of sunscreen, the peak wavelength for inducing sunburn, the peak wavelength for inducing tanning response, and the wavelength at which UV filters would uh, degrade. All right, great. So it, it is a, a method that is used by the FDA and all the sunscreen manufacturers are required now to do uh, critical wavelength tests in order to, for the product to be labeled as broad spectrum in the US. Very good. Okay, question three. Which of the following best describes the property of micronized titanium dioxide reflects UV radiation, scatters UV radiation, absorbs UV radiation, all of the above. Very good. So that is, that is absolutely correct. They're all of the above because it uh, scatters, reflects, but also it absorbs. I show you, especially when it becomes smaller in terms of diameter, it absorbs more. The last question, which of the following has been shown to decrease the development of non-melanoma skin cancer, alpha lipoic acid, biotin, folate, nicotinamide, and vitamin D? Perfect. 
Very good. Thank you. I think this is, this is it. And, uh, I understand their evaluation, also their question. That's the reason I did uh, leave some, some time behind for questions. Are we running this uh, slide from back? performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? So the first question is that will you please summarize any evidence of harmful effects of various chemical and physical sunblocks? By the way, the term that we use is sunscreen because the block is the physical block. So if you have an opaque titanium dioxide, zinc oxide paste, for example, that would be a block. But the one that is transparent, those are uh, the, the proper term for that would be sunscreen for patients that will ask. I think I mentioned that before, you know, the most controversial one usually is uh, uh, oxybenzone. I mentioned about the, the reason for that endocrinologic effect in animals, and then the, nowadays the environmental effect on coral reefs. Again, the data is not very, very strong, but it is out there, and patients will ask about it all the time. The other one that I did not have time to go into is retinol palmitate, which is a vitamin A derivative. That also gets asked quite a bit by some patients, and uh, retinol palmitate is present in some sunscreen, not so much as a UV filter, more as an antioxidant. In fact, nowadays, however, because of the controversy, uh, the number of sunscreen that contain retinol palmitate is significantly less because most uh, manufacturers had taken it out because it's not a UV filter. It's not that essential for the performance of the sunscreen. The concern with retinol palmitate is that there's some data in animal that the animal who are exposed to retinol palmitate together with UV would develop skin cancer. That is, uh, again, in human, it has never been the case. In fact, as we all know, we use retin-A all the time for photoaging. We use systemic retinoids for, to prevent skin cancer in patients who are immunosuppressed, for example. So the, the data is, the, the, the concern is not really, not very strong in terms of the data for the concern, but nonetheless, it is out there. That is the reason uh, retinal palmitate, fewer and fewer sunscreen would contain retinal palmitate. The physical sunblocks, um, uh, physical blockers, essentially, the titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. I've mentioned before it is used quite a bit because it has synergistic effect with, uh, with chemical sunscreen in increasing the SPF. The concern with nanoparticles in the past is that uh, it can, uh, by itself, upon exposure to UV, result in the uh, generation of reactive oxygen species. Keeping in mind, however, nowadays the technology is such that all those nanoparticles, they are coated so the reactive oxygen species that is generated from that uh, nanoparticles upon exposure to UV is within the nanoparticle itself. It does not result in damage to the surrounding skin. So it's still very, very safe. 
Is there any concern about systemic absorption of nanoparticles? Uh, this question is raised all the time, uh, uh, whether the nanoparticle can absorb, because our body is, uh, would not be able to metabolize any of these nanoparticles. However, the data is very good now to show that nanoparticles in intact skin would stay in the skin surface. It may get to the hair follicles. It's very, very, very small amount would get penetrated into the dermis. So the, the safety in intact skin is very, very good. So I'm very comfortable even uh, for, for all patients to use uh, nanoparticle-containing sunscreen without having to be concerned about uh, absorption. The concern, however, is that in patients whose epidermal barrier has been damaged, patients with very severe atopic dermatitis, for example, where you have a lot of obviously fissures and cracks on the skin, would in those patients, would there be a higher risk of having nanoparticle being absorbed? That probably is true. We don't have good data for that, but theoretically that could be true. So I think we have to be careful in those group of patients. Probably for those patients, it's better to use uh, just physical blocker, meaning that using clothings and so on to, to protect them, rather than having to use any type of uh, sunscreen that contains nanoparticles. All right, uh, could you give a brand of sunscreen plus antioxidant you recommend to the patients? No, I cannot. Uh, that, that would be a total conflict of interest. And so uh, for those of you who are interested, I'll be happy to talk to you uh, after the uh, session. The, the challenge is this. The antioxidants right now, there is no good standardized measurement of how good that antioxidant is. I mentioned before, you know, it took a while for the FDA to finally get approved particular method to measure UVA protection of sunscreen. Right now, antioxidant, there is no, absolutely there is no uh, uh, standardized method as to how antioxidant should be measured. So there is no way for all of us, for any one of us, to be able to say, yes, this particular product has very good antioxidant versus no, that particular product is not so good. The studies that were shown were very specific for that particular product uh, by, by certain companies, but you know, the, uh, the rest of it is very difficult for us to make a judgment on the antioxidants. Iron oxide effectively blocks visible light? It, it does. Iron oxide does block visible light because, it, because of that it is pigmented. What is the minimum percentage needed for the product? That I do not know. I'm sure it's low, but I do not know. And, and yet I'm sure uh, people in industry would know more about how much, uh, what is the percentage that would be needed. It is low, uh, we do know, uh, because it does uh, cause pigmentation. And because of that, this is a block. That, uh, uh, iron oxide, when it's applied, it, it, is, it can produce a sun block because it's physically block the, the light. Nanoparticles altering DNA, that, uh, that is worthy because of the reactive oxygen species that is generated. Because of that, it can damage DNA. But as I mentioned, nowadays nanoparticles are coded. Because of that, it is, uh, the, the, it is not a major issue at all. In fact, there have, there have been no signal uh, of any skin cancer developing in patients who use nanoparticle-containing sunscreen. Patients who work in factories concerned about melasma worsening under poor quality light. Uh, this is tough because uh, presumably, you know, there are probably multiple factors claim melasma can get worsened with UV exposure. I showed you the data that melasma uh, potentially can get worse also with visible light. If it is, uh, if it is uh, uh, inside, 
poor quality light is not quite clear. If it is very strong light that, is, uh, uh, that she is exposed to all the time, it is possible the visible light from the light uh, from the uh, from the from the light that she she works under would result in darkening of her uh, melasma. Unfortunately, we don't have very very good sunscreen right now because it is on a visible light range. Sunscreen does not protect against that. I think we know that uh, clinically. You know, we have a lot of patients. I'm certain all of us uh, that they say that I would use sunscreen yet my melasma continued to get worse. So for those patients, we don't have very good topical treatment yet unless you, know, you put on literally a, a, a sunblock, you know, titanium dioxide, zinc oxide, or iron oxide containing a product that would cover uh, the skin, protect them from the effect of visible light. Something that I'm beginning to use is transdynamic acid. Uh, Transdynamic acid uh, uh, comes in 650 milligram in the U.S. here. Uh, the study has been done primarily in, uh, in Asia. Uh, they used 250 milligram twice a day of transdynamic acid, and many of them had shown very good results. We're just beginning to use it in our center. Uh, we split, it, we asked a patient to cut the three, six, uh, three, 650 milligram tablets into two. So you, you take 325 in the morning, 325 uh, in the evening. The reason to do that is that because the half-life is about uh, 11 hours or so. Uh, again, data is out there to show that it is helpful. Personally, I haven't seen it yet because still relatively early, but there's something we are beginning to do. Should polypodium taken every day or shortly prior to sun exposure? Based on the data that I showed, in, including ours as well as those in the literature, it works very, very quickly. So if you, are, you know that you're going to be indoor all the time for that particular day, uh, probably there is no need to take that. But if you're going to be outdoor, Shortly before, if you want to take it, it probably is helpful. Again, you know, I said probably because you know, we, the study is relatively small, 22 patients, and the other studies that have been published also is relatively small number of patients. But nonetheless, you know, it is benign enough, so if you want to, to do that, it's perfectly safe, but probably doesn't have to be taken every day unless you know that you're going to be outdoor uh, pretty much uh, uh, on a daily basis. Are uh, nicotinamide effective at 500 daily instead of BID? Good question. The answer is I do not know. Uh, the reason is that the study was done at 500 BID. So that is the reason that I recommend the patients of 500 BID. Okay, that, that, so that, that is, there is no data on the daily uh, of 500 days, so again, I, I cannot comment on that particular one. Is there a particular sunscreen you recommend to a patient? Is there a line combination found to be more photoprotective? Uh, usually, I can as mention in general, I'm not going to mention brand, but in general, uh, being in Detroit, you know, I see a lot of patients with dark skin. Uh, the darker skin patient, usually they do not uh, tolerate, uh, because of cosmetic reason, the sunscreen that contains titanium dioxide and zinc oxide because it would result in whitish residue that is visible uh, for darker skin individuals. So for those individuals, usually I try to use sunscreen that contain only organic filters. So that's probably as much as I can uh, mention here. Uh, combination product. There are some sunscreen that seems to be better than others that I can recommend more frequently than others. Uh, but again, I'll be happy to talk to you uh, after the meeting, uh, after the, the lecture. How long does it take for nicotinamide to take uh, effect? 
Definitely not acute, uh, because if you think about you know, this ATP uh, issue, energy crisis, obviously it takes a while for the cell to build up. That particular study, they did not specifically look at you know, how long it would be. They just put the patient uh, uh, on nicotinamide for a year. So I don't have the uh, clear answer, but generally probably it will take at least, uh, I would uh, expect two to three weeks probably to be on the safe side. Safe enough that I think you should take it. One can uh, have the patient to take it. All right, it seems to be the end. Any other question that you guys want to ask? If not, thank you all very much. Thank you again for waking up in the morning. Thank you. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.